Are Christians people who just support the status quo? Or do they care about people on the margins primarily? Tony Campolo is with us to talk about the poor and about how Christians can advocate for people who've been left out. On Good God, I'm George Mason. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm glad to welcome as my guest, uh, Tony Campolo. Tony has been with us for one episode already, and you're back, and I'm so delighted to have you, Tony. Thanks Thank for you. being with us. Thank you. Uh, Tony, we talked in the previous episode much about uh, your identification with evangelicals and how that term is beginning to shift and be contested today and how you have been part of a movement that is uh, growing called Red Letter Christians. Yes. Uh, Red Letter Christians being uh, people who try to take the words of Jesus seriously. Mm -hmm. Back in the old King James versions of the Bible, often they would print the words of Jesus in red letters instead of the black to distinguish them. Uh, and so this movement is beginning to get some traction. Can you tell us a little more about what a red letter Christian is and how this group is being organized? Well, the term red letter Christians is something you've already defined. We take the red letters of the Bible, the words of Jesus that are highlighted in red, and say, what does it mean to live them out? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus said, you are my disciples if you do whatsoever I command you. Mm. That's a strong line. Yes. Uh, do people in our churches uh, take the words of Jesus seriously? What he says about money, mm -hmm. what he says about forgiveness, what he says about prayer, what he says about, well, about a whole host of things. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Uh, and... Uh, that's the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh chapters of Matthew. What does it mean to live that way, uh, to, uh, to embrace that lifestyle? Mm -hmm. A Jewish guy wrote a book on uh, living the teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It became a bestseller. Hmm. How many people did he find in the church who were trying to live like Jesus called them to live? Mm -hmm. And he found them very few. Yes. And I think that's a fair statement. I think that um, the Red Letter Christians movement says a lot of things, but of all the issues we focus on, the one we focus on most of all is the poor. Jesus says more about the poor than any other single thing. Mm -hmm. uh, 25th chapter of Matthew, mm -hmm. the only description Jesus gives of Judgment Day we're judged not according to our theology. I wish we were. Mm -hmm. I'm what they call orthodox. Mm -hmm. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the second coming of Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. I'm, I'm sound orthodox. Uh, they, there is that to be said. But uh, today, that's not the primary concern. The primary concern is elsewhere. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus, he says more about poor people than anything else. As a matter of fact, when you're dealing with the most controversial issue of our day, mm -hmm. which is splitting every denomination, almost every church, mm -hmm. it's gay marriage. Right. What does Jesus say about gays? Mm -hmm. 
Nothing? Nothing. I mean, not only doesn't he deal with gay marriage, he says nothing mm -hmm. about homosexuality. Right. He says a great deal about religious people who are judgmental. Mm -hmm. If you go to the 23rd chapter of Matthew, there's a long list of uh, accusations against religious people. Woe unto you, mm -hmm. religious people. Mm -hmm. I love this line. It says it so well. Who lay heavy burdens on people and do nothing to lift those burdens. I mean, you would have to say that the church has laid heavy burdens on gay and lesbians, transgendered, bisexual, laid heavy burdens on them. So let's talk about that a little more because you and I have uh, the distinction of being uh, people who are older and have actually changed their minds about yeah. this matter. Um, both of us have paid some price for that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Of course, you, you pay a price uh, in losing some friends and, and relationships that were dear to you. You also gain the opportunity to know people that you wouldn't have known and, and, and make friends that are beautiful new relationships. But Tony, you, you have had a painful experience in changing your mind about this. Can you say a few words about that? Well, yes, I changed my mind on this. I don't know that I changed my mind, it's changed my public position. Okay. I think my mind had been changing over a period of about three years, leading up to a statement that I put out over the internet three years ago mm -hmm. as to why I now supported gay marriage. Up until that time, I was speaking somewhere around 300 times a year. Mm -hmm. That's incredible when you stop to think about it. It really is exhausting I mean, to think yeah. about it. Yeah. And I was all over the world preaching. When I put out my statement that said, I now support gay marriage, I would say 90% of the engagements I had on the books were canceled. Mm -hmm. And it's been difficult to get new engagements to take their place. Mm -hmm. I was 80 years old when I put out that statement. I'm close to 84 now, and my wife said, so you're not getting a lot of invitations. It sounds so much better to say Tony lost his audience because he took a bold and heroic stand, rather than saying Tony lost his audience because he's getting too old. <laughs> it does sound better, doesn't it? it does. Hardly a day goes by or a week goes by where I don't get letters either from gay people or from more important parents of gay people mm -hmm. who say, where were you when my son was struggling? Mm -hmm. uh, when he finally came out, he felt he had to leave the church because he didn't feel there was any place in the church for him. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't know that there were churches like yours that he could go to. He didn't know that there are people like you, Tony, who uh, he always thought was a bona fide evangelical preacher mm -hmm. who said, wait a minute, these things I know to be true. I'm a sociologist. There's certain things I know to be true. Mm -hmm. One is I, my studies were always on the males, homosexuals, when I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania before going to join the faculty of Eastern University, the Baptist School, where I've been for so many years. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the thing is that uh, I began to go through the scriptures and I looked at those Bible passages that gays refer to as the clobber passages. Right. And I began to say, Tony, you're not going to deny scripture, are you? 
because my adversaries always say he no longer believes the Bible. I do believe the Bible. I just don't interpret it the yeah. same way as those who want to put down gay people interpret the scripture. If you talk to people, it always comes down in the end to what Paul writes in Romans 1, because as I already said, Jesus never addresses the issue of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Romans 1, and it reads like this, and they take the image of the incorruptible God, transform him into the likeness of corruptible man, and to four-footed beasts and birds of the air, and they end up worshiping the creature mm -hmm. rather than the creator. Therefore, God gives them up to uncleanness. Mm -hmm. And it talks about men having sex with men and women having sex with women. They say, what are you going to do with that passage? Well, I think all of us who try to understand Scripture always ask this first question. Where was the writer when he wrote that? And how did the people to whom he wrote it understand it? Well, Paul happened to be in Corinth at the time, the city of Corinth. The dominant religion was the worship of Aphrodite, who had a son mm -hmm. called Hermes, mm -hmm. from whence we get the word hermaphrodite. Mm -hmm. Had the genitals, organs of both sexes, both male and female. In the worship of Aphrodite, you went to the temple and it was horrible. There were male prostitutes and female prostitutes. And if you were a woman, you had sex with a woman prostitute. If you were a male, you had sex with a male prostitute. Mm -hmm. You say, this is wild. I mean, the temple of Aphrodite was a sexual orgy. Mm -hmm. And now the question is asked. When Paul wrote that passage, which is so obviously against idolatry, mm -hmm. was he condemning the loving relationships that can exist between gay and lesbian people? Or was he condemning the sexual orgies that went on in the idolatrous worship of the day? Mm -hmm. And I came to the conclusion it was the latter, mm -hmm. that Paul wasn't talking about the loving relationships between people who had made a lifetime commitment. It's about time we face reality. Mm -hmm. There are very few churches that don't have gay and lesbian people in the congregation. Most of us know it's um, don't ask, don't tell. Right. Uh, one of my friends who is the leading Christian musician of our day said, if they got rid of all the gays from the church, half of our music programs would yeah. day, <laughs> close down. Right. And there are so many churches that have people that they know are gay, right. and, uh, but they don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And so these people sit there and they feel alone yes. and they feel estranged and they feel that things are being said about them, not realizing who they are. Mm -hmm. That kind of pain. Well, this also was a factor for me as a pastor in realizing that my only counsel that I could give to persons uh, with same-sex orientation in my previous way of understanding this was to simply say that you therefore have to practice the discipline of lifelong celibacy that this is your cross to bear for Christ, and that uh, if you were an unmarried um, 
person who is attracted to the opposite sex, we would expect that from you, and so therefore you, you need to practice celibacy. But what I watched take place in the lives of people was people who did not have the biblical gift of celibacy mm -hmm. being forced to accept this as a matter of lifelong discipline, uh, and it meant a kind of hopelessness to mm -hmm. them. God made us for relationships. God made us for intimacy. Yeah. And, and, and I was simply declaring outside of my own experience where I had no personal experience with this, I was declaring to someone else what God wanted for them and required of them in order to be fully accepted in the life of the church. And I watched that frustration taking place in the self-loathing and the hiding and the and it was not helpful it was it was not leading people into a richer experience of grace instead it was leading them away from the church and and, and a relationship to Christ same thing here mm -hmm. i'm a sociologist mm -hmm. i know that men do not choose to be gay right i know they don't i've interviewed so many of them mm -hmm. they they always, they always say. People ask me uh, how I became, how I chose to be homosexual. I always respond by saying, "And when did you choose to become heterosexual? Yeah. Can you remember a time in your life when you decided to become heterosexual? You just are. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is with me." Says the homosexual guy. Sociologists know that nobody can explain what causes a homosexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Those who say it's genetic or it's inborn, not enough evidence to support that. Those who say it's poor parenting, which is a terrible thing to do. One of our leading radio personalities says it's because you have a weak father and a dominating mother. The average parent who has a gay kid mm -hmm. is going through hell knowing what that child's gonna have to go through in life. Mm -hmm. The last thing he or she needs is to have some preachers say, your kid's gay because it's your failure. Right. There's no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we know sociologically that it's very rare, if at all possible, and I don't even think it's possible, mm -hmm. but I'll never say an absolute. Right. Gay people don't change. Mm -hmm. They go through all kinds of counseling, all kinds of uh, therapy. It never changes them. You were talking about your counseling with young people. Suicide is the second major cause of death yes. among young people. More than three quarters of the suicides among teenagers are suicides over sexual orientation. Yes. This kid grows up in an evangelical church where he's being told he's a pervert, Mm -hmm. God hates him, right. he's going to hell, mm -hmm. and the kid internalizes all of this mm -hmm. and ends up hating himself for what he never chose and what he can never change right. and ultimately in despair kills himself. I am so tired of the church driving kids to suicide. And please, your, your listeners can uh, write to me all they want. <laughs> And they will write to me. I always this get... breaks my heart too. I, I mean, I think that this is is really not an overstatement. When we think about the the way the church environment has conditioned people 
in such a way that they feel hopeless yeah. in, in, in their uh, sexual orientation. When we come back from the break, I want to pursue the question though, Tony, how we relate experience and scripture uh, in, in reconciling these things, because I think so many people struggle with that very point. Uh, let's take a break. Good God salutes the vital services provided to our community by the North Texas Food Bank. Each day, the North Texas Food Bank Feeding Network provides access to more than 190,000 meals for hungry children, seniors, and families. Visit ntfb.org to get involved. We're back with Tony Campolo. Tony, we were just talking about the experience of gay Christians and uh, the pain that comes from a church that seems to know more about them than, uh, than they know about themselves. Uh, and, and, and learning to listen to the experience of people uh, rather than simply dictating experience to them. That makes people nervous, Tony, especially in evangelical churches, doesn't it? Because it sure does. there's, there's, there's this feeling that we're departing from the authority of Scripture and yet, even in Scripture, what we see over and over again is the experience of God even hearing the cries of people and responding. The experience of Jesus recognizing that he thought he was going in this direction, but he's sensitive to this hurting person here and pays attention to them and heals them anyway. Uh, the, the, it's really not as neat and clean in divorcing experience in Scripture, is it? No. And uh, interpreting scripture is a difficult thing. Yes. And we shouldn't take it lightly. And each person is called to do it, as we Baptists believe. Yes. Work out your own salvation, says the scripture, with fear and trembling. <laughs> with fear and trembling. Yes. Uh, let me uh, say that uh, it's not just on this issue. Yes. Uh, I said that Jesus said nothing about gays, nothing about homosexuality, nothing about gay marriage. Mm -hmm. He's very specific about people who get divorces and then remarry. Yes. Very specific. Mm -hmm. The church has learned to be gracious, mm -hmm. to say it's not as simple as all of that. Yes. Life is complex. Mm -hmm. Here's a woman that's getting beaten by her husband who is being humiliated at every turn, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't she have a right to get out of that marriage? Yes. And if she's all alone, doesn't she have a right to get married again, mm -hmm. uh, hoping for a better thing yes. the next time around? In short, uh, you always ask people, why are we so gracious towards people who are divorced and remarried? Mm -hmm. And we are. I don't know of a church that doesn't accept divorced and remarried people into the membership. And we've changed, that's changed in our lifetime. Of course. I mean, you and I are both old enough to have remembered when you couldn't teach Sunday school. You might not even be welcome back at church if, yeah. you, were, if you divorced. My church, I'm, I'm up north, I'm American Baptist. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in my church, which is a very moderate church, uh, if you got divorced and remarried, mm -hmm. you were put out of the membership of the church. There you go. Yeah, we've changed. Yes. Because we realize that the grace of God has to be exercised here. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that things aren't as mm -hmm. simple as all of that. And all I'm saying is if we're so gracious to these people, mm -hmm. 
Why can't we be gracious to these other people called gays and lesbians? Why can't we show grace uh, to them? Uh, I asked, uh, one of my students said, uh, um, I was at a junior high camp and I was trying to explain grace. And uh, one kid said, I've got it. You're going 75 miles down the road, 75 miles an hour. You're speeding, the cop pulls you over because it's a 50 mile an hour zone. He comes alongside and he gives you a ticket. You can't argue because that's justice. If he gives you a warning, that's mercy. Mm-hmm. But if he comes alongside of the car and gives you a Krispy Kreme donut, that's <laughs> grace. Unexpected. Yes. Undeserved. Right. Comes out of nowhere. Right. That's grace. Yes. You don't deserve what God gives you. Right. He forgives. He forgets. He blots out your sin. It's buried in the deepest sea. It's remembered no more. It's grace, and it's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't earn it. I try to live a Christian life, not in order to get God's forgiveness. I try to live a Christian life in accord with the teachings of Jesus because I am forgiven, Yes. because I have been the recipient of this great gift of God. Mm-hmm. It's a gift. That famous verse that we all know in the evangelical circles, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone boast. That's where I come from. But uh, it's a long way to move towards this. Now, the thing that changed me, I, I began to deal with Scripture and saying, does Scripture really say what those who are against gays contend that it says? And I said, I don't think it does. I could go through passages. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm dealing with students, I always mockingly say, they say, what about the 11th chapter of, 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 of Leviticus? Mm-hmm. And it says, to touch the skin of a dead pig mm-hmm. is an abomination to God. And then it goes on to say, you know, that a man lying with a man is an abomination to God. Mm-hmm. Touching the skin, I said, you know, when, when you read that, to touch the skin of a dead pig is an abomination. It puts the whole Super Bowl into serious question. You know? <laughs> you know, the reason why uh, Eagles for so many years uh, couldn't win any games was because they had these deeply devout wide receivers and the ball would come in their direction uh, and they wouldn't want to touch. <laughs> Jokingly, of course. But all of those things in the Hebrew Bible yes. are part of what any biblical scholar, even a conservative scholar like somebody at Dallas Theological Seminary or Moody Bible Institute, if you look at what they would say, they would say it's all part of what we call the purity codes, right. better called the kosher rules. Yes. We all know that when Jesus came on the scene and after the day of Pentecost, Paul says the kosher laws no longer apply to you. So all those kosher laws that are in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. we don't obey them. We eat we yes. eat shellfish, we, we eat mm-hmm. shrimp, we, mm-hmm. uh, we eat ham, we, we don't keep the purity codes. Right. Every scholar will tell you that the gay statements are all part of the purity code in the Old Testament. Right. So we're really left with a handful of passages in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we've, we've got to face up to the fact that we've built a very strong case against gays on very little biblical evidence. Well, there's also... 
when you talk about the purity laws, there is uh, that probably the background of that is how do you identify with a particular people who are part of this group that honors this God and lives in this way, right? So early on, there was this pulling away from the pagan religions and the practices that were considered to be unclean and immoral uh, so that you could be part of, of this group. Even Israel, though, began to move from identification only in this sort of negative way through the purity code to through the prophets, what we see is uh, it's not about your purity, it's about your care for the neighbor. Yeah. It's about the, the, the way you do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. So by the time we get to the Christian movement and the New Testament, what we see is there is this growing sense that if you really want to understand what Jesus is saying and doing, you have to pay attention to who's been marginalized. As a sociologist, who's been outside the uh, boundaries of the religious community? Uh, who's been, who, is the, who are the poor, who are left out of the prosperity God wills for? Every time you, you see one of these statements, you should be looking at where are people located in this? Because that's where God's concern seems to be. Well, you couldn't have said it any better. Uh, that to be Christian mm -hmm. is to be committed to people who live on the margins. Yes. And um, I teach at Eastern University. This is a Baptist school just outside of Philadelphia. We have turned out young people who have made major impacts, not only on the church, but on the world. It's a small school, 1,500 undergraduates. But Brian Stevenson, this great champion of of doing away with the death penalty, the just mercy, yeah, yeah. oh my and, god, and, and the lynching museum, uh, yeah. in, in, yeah. he, he's one of our guys, Fantastic. Uh, Shane Claiborne, right. who is perhaps the uh, young people's hero these days, the new monastic movement, yeah, and yes. uh, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hardgrove. These are yes. all graduates right. of, of of our school, Fantastic. and these are people that I had the privilege of nurturing, mm -hmm. and. Uh, as we deal with this, the thing is that we turn out people who are concerned about those who live on the margins. Yes. And that's what Jesus came to do. If you read the red letters of the Bible, mm -hmm. who does he reach out to? The prostitutes, mm -hmm. the tax collectors, right. the publicans, women, women, the poor, over and over again, yeah. uh, even even those who are outside of Israel, even if reluctantly at first, he begins that process and the church picks it up. Right. I asked uh, Adriana Huffington mm. of the Huffington Post, mm. who is a very devout uh, Christian. Mm -hmm. She is uh, Greek Orthodox. Okay. I said, when you're a foremost political analyst, when you look at a political candidate, how do you judge him or her? And she said this, I asked one simple question. What will this candidate do if elected for those that Jesus called the least of these? Wow. Great line. Mm -hmm. If you go to the 25th chapter of Matthew, mm -hmm. on judgment day, you will be judged by how you treated those who Jesus called the least of these, yes. the least of these, the least of these. What an important phrase, the least of these. And if you're a follower of Jesus, mm -hmm. you should be committed mm -hmm. 
to those who he called the least of these. So we find ourselves, as we wrap up this conversation, in, in, in a country right now where many people talk about the economy booming, about how the stock market is at an all-time high, about how uh, there's low unemployment for people across the board, including uh, black unemployment being historically low. And yet, for all that prosperity, we have the, the widest gap since the Gilded Age uh, yeah. between rich and poor. We have a kind of stagnation, not only of wages, but of hope uh, among people of lower and middle class. And so somehow, for Christians to be celebrating the economy and promoting policies that continue to dampen the hopes of people who are on the margins, this is contradictory to our very faith tradition. Let me just say what a sociologist should say at a point like this. Nobody's going to argue that more and more money is being concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Yes. Nobody's going to argue with that. Right. The point is this. People who are very, very, very rich spend very little of the money that they earn on any given day. Yes. Donald Trump probably earns millions of dollars per day. How much money does he spend on a given day? Right. The point is that the way the economy stays alive is by people buying things. Yes. And if the money gets concentrated into the hands of people who are not buying as much, right. one thing about poor people, mm -hmm. <laughs> like it or not like it, they spend every dime they ever consumers. get. That's yes. right. That's right. Rich people don't. Right. And so sociologists say, what is the long-term effect mm -hmm. of wealth moving into the hands of very few people, most of whom spend very little of it? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this great story of Henry Ford and uh, Walter Ruther, the head of the uh, United Auto Workers. They were taking a tour through the new Ford Motor Company's automated process. And they said, do you see all these machines, Walter? They don't pay union dues, mm -hmm. to which Walter Ruther said, and they don't buy Fords either. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to, right. you've got to ask, right. what's the danger? Yes. And I think America is moving into a dangerous state of being mm -hmm. with more and more money concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Mm -hmm. We're not in a position in the long run of keeping our economy going. That's that's off the track. I want to get back to the Bible. Well, we, we, we're out of time, but I, I want to say, Tony, I think that what we can find as common cause together as, as Christians and along with people of other religions as well is this commitment to uh, including everyone in the prosperity that God intends Amen. for the world. Amen. And that is good news, and that's what the gospel is about. So, I want to say at Eastern, we have concentrated on an MBA program. Uh -huh that trains people to go to poor families, poor people in developing countries and in the inner city and start small businesses and cottage industries mm. that those people can own and run themselves. Beautiful. We love that because the Democrats and the Republicans will agree. Mm -hmm. The only way to end poverty mm -hmm. is not through political policy, mm -hmm. but creating jobs for poor people. Okay. And we want to recreate the new missionary, the missionary of the 21st century, will go to the poor of the world and say, we know how to start small businesses and cottage industries that you can own and run yourself and escape from poverty. 
Beautiful. We think that Jesus wants us to overcome poverty. Beautiful. And this is the best way of doing it. Well, thank you for your passion and for your commitment to the way of Jesus. I'm grateful to be in it with you. Good to be here with you. Thanks, Tony. And with your people. Thank you. God salutes the vital services provided to our community by the North Texas Food Bank. Each day, the North Texas Food Bank Feeding Network provides access to more than 190,000 meals for hungry children, seniors, and families. Visit ntfb.org to get involved.